right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Citizens. My name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors uh, here at the church, especially if you're new or visiting for the first time. Uh, we especially want to welcome you as well. And like Esther mentioned, um, we know that Sunday services can get a little bit uh, overwhelming. And so um, would love to meet. Usually I'm hanging around the info table somewhere. And so would love to get to know you if you want to come up and chat uh, after the service and have any questions about the church at all. Okay, uh, excited to get into God's Word. Um, if you have your Bibles or if you have a phone with you, if you want to turn with me to the book of Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25, it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, but if, if you like to follow along on your phone, I'm going to be reading uh, from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. Uh, if you were here with us last week, we started a new series on the fruit of the Spirit. And so for the next, uh, for 10 weeks, this text uh, is going to be the anchoring text for us. And so uh, you can just bookmark that passage because it's going to be the same text read each week. And something we're doing um, each time is we're actually going to, once we get to verses 22 to 25, we're going to read that together in one voice. Uh, we really want to use these next 10 weeks to commit that section to memory. Um, I just feel like um, being able to kind of memorize scripture is a lost spiritual practice. And so we're going to try to do that together as a community. And so I'll start at verse 16. And then when we get to verse 22, uh, let us know and we'll all read together in one voice. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. This is the reading of God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And let's read this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. May every word be from your heart. May every word emanate from your being, um, and may it be planted deep within our souls this morning. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, like I mentioned last week, we launched a new series on the fruit of the Spirit, uh, the life that the Holy Spirit produces in and through us that manifests in these nine attributes that the Apostle Paul lists in Galatians 5. Remember, they're not nine separate traits, but nine aspects of one fruit growing in the heart of every believer. And the first attribute of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists, the one we're looking at today, is love. Now, how do you preach a sermon on love? Okay, and, it, and, and it makes 
sense that this is the first on Paul's list because in some sense, um, all the other attributes flow out of and are held together by love. In fact, love is the only attribute on the list uh, in Scripture that is directly equated to God himself. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. It doesn't say God has love. It says God is love. It's his identity. It's the truest thing about him. It's who God has always been. Before the world was created, there was love because there was God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit in a community of love. And everything God created, he created not because he wanted love or he needed more love or was deficient in love. He created it out of an overflow and an abundance of the love that he already had. There is nothing that mirrors the character and heart of God more than when you and I love. If you want to know what God looks like, he looks like love. You cannot separate God and love. And so you can understand why preaching anything on love is almost impossible because it would be like preaching a sermon on God, right? There is nothing that I could say. There are no words that I could string together that would adequately express, capture the essence of what love is, uh, but we're going to try today, okay? Now, obviously, the word love is a loaded word in our culture. We use this same word to describe how we feel about our children, and we use that same word to describe how we feel about an article of clothing, Right? And we're able to do that because this is how most people would define love, as a feeling. It's something that happens to us. This is why we use phrases like falling in and out of love with something or someone. But the Bible defines love in a completely different way. The Greek word for love that the Apostle Paul uses in Galatians 5.22 is the word agape. It's the same word for love the Apostle John uses in 1 John 3.16 when he writes... This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. One chapter later in 1 John 4.10, he says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In John 15, he writes, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Over and over again, there's this connection between love and laying down your life for another person. It's not a feeling, but an action, a decision, a conscious choice to give something at great cost to yourself without asking for anything in return, to do something that puts the needs of someone else over your own. Love is a death to self. And this is why the title of this sermon is Love, Freedom from Selfishness. Okay, love freedom from selfishness. People often think the opposite of love is hate, but I would argue that hate is really just a symptom of a deeper root issue, selfishness. Okay, think about it, right? Uh, why do we hate people? And, and, and I know we didn't come to church today to think about someone you hate, but take a moment and just think about someone uh, you hate, right? Um, and if that's, that feels too harsh for you, um, think about someone you really struggle to love. Someone in your life right now that is very difficult to love. And ask yourself, why is this person so difficult to love? It's usually because this person gets in our way. It's because they offend us. They hurt us. They represent something we don't agree with. They get in the way of our plans and our ambitions. In other words, we hate because we are self-preserving in nature. 
When you think about the hatred that underlies so many of society's ills, racism, genocide, war, really it comes down to a group of people doing everything they can to protect their self-interest. It com comes down to the gravitational pull of every human heart toward selfishness. When you go all the way back to Genesis 3, what was the first sin ever committed? It wasn't murder. It wasn't lying. It wasn't adultery. It wasn't lust. It was pride and selfish ambition. It was human beings saying, my will be done, rather than thy will be done. It was human beings saying, my way rather than God's way. And the moment Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, what do we read? We read that their eyes were open, they realized they were naked, and so what did they do? They sewed fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. They hid. So the first act of sin was an act of selfishness, and the first response to that sin was an act of self-preservation. If the original default setting of the human heart was love, then the new default setting after the fall was a heart of selfishness, right? And when you read Paul's list of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, you could say all of them flow out of selfishness. Think about it. Jealousy and envy. What, what are jealousy and envy? These things come out of a heart that says, I want what you have, and if I can't have it, you can't have it either. Dissensions and rivalries start why? out of a heart that says, I want power and I want control for myself. In order for me to win, you have to lose. Sexual immorality stems from where? From a heart that says, getting my needs met is more important than being faithful to God or being faithful to my significant other. All the works of the flesh ultimately are the consequences of a life that revolves around me. My needs, my comfort, my preferences, my timeline. But Paul in verse 13 of this passage writes this. He says, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Love is moving out of a mindset that says, what's in it for me, toward a mindset that asks, how can I serve you? How can I protect you? How can I take care of you? But you see, this mindset goes against every fiber of our being and everything our culture is teaching us. Obviously, selfishness is not a modern problem. It's been here since the beginning of time, but I would argue that our culture now makes it easier than ever to be selfish, right? All the messaging right now is around self-love, self-development, self-actualization, and not that these things are bad things by any, mean, by any means, but there is a high value right now placed on taking care of the self on taking care of number one. We live in the selfie generation, right? Where of the 2.3 billion photos that are taken every day, 93 million of them are selfies, okay? In fact, young people, they say, take one to four selfies every day, okay? And studies show that when they take a selfie, it first takes 11 seconds to decide whether or not you like the selfie. And then it takes another 26 minutes to decide whether you think that selfie is good enough to post on social media. Okay, that's a lot of time looking at your face every day, right? And yet so much of life revolves, is pointed inwards. So much of life revolves around me. After the pandemic, everyone's on Zoom. And what do you do when you're in a Zoom meeting? 
you look at yourself, right? If your camera is on, it doesn't matter who else is talking, you're looking straight at yourself the entire time. Even when you're talking, you're looking at yourself, speak to yourself. I mean, the, the digital age has made it easier than ever to focus all of our affections, desires, attention toward the self. There was an article um, on NPR that was written in 2014. So this is, this is almost a decade ago. Um, but it was called Not So Social Media, Why People Have Stopped Talking on Their Phones. Right? And it's very crazy how much uh, things have changed. I grew up in an era where it was totally appropriate to cold call someone out of the blue. Right? And now, apparently, everyone says that's rude. Okay? And so now you have to text someone first to ask them if they can speak on the phone or schedule a time to speak to them, and then you can call them, okay? So you can only cold call someone if it's like an absolute emergency. And I've cold called people and they're like, are you okay? And I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, just, just calling, right? There've been people that I've called, they didn't pick up, they screened my call, and then a moment later they texted me and they said, what's up? And I was like, oh, are you, are you busy? They're like, no, but what's up, right? And, and we all do this. And this article was explaining why people prefer texting over calling, and really it comes down to this. Calling forces you to set aside what you're doing to give someone your attention, whereas texting, you can multitask, you can do a lot of other things, and you can respond at your own leisure. You can respond how you please. There was even a quote in the article by a college student who said, even if it's someone I know well and love, and love, I resent the intrusion. The phone is so pushy. It's just suddenly so there, demanding, talk to me, say funny things, or I'm sad, cheer me up. Translation, even when it comes to the people I say I love, I don't want to inconvenience myself because I have things to do and places to go, and so I will respond to you when and how I want to. You see, we're living in a culture where people want all the benefits of relationships without the commitment or the sacrifice. This is the world in 2022. And so you see how the Bible's definition of love, to lay down our lives for another person at great cost to ourselves, completely flies in the face of everything we're being taught, right? Now, some of you may be sitting here being like, well, I don't know that I'm, I'm selfish, and I don't know that I hate anyone. Um, I feel like I'm a pretty sacrificial person. I do a lot of things. I go out of my way to do a lot of things for people. I do things that I don't want to do for people in my life. And remember that the Bible's definition of love doesn't just stop at giving at great cost to yourself. If you remember what I said at the beginning, Love is giving at great cost to yourself without asking for anything in return. And that last part is the key. Without asking for anything in return. You see, the great enemy of love is the phrase, as long as. I will love you as long as. I will love you as long as you apologize first. I will love you as long as you help me get to where I need to go. I will love you as long as you agree with me. I will love you as long as you stop hanging out with that other person I don't really like. 
I will love you as long as you stop bothering me. I will love you as long as you don't inconvenience me or burden me with your problems. I will long love you as long as you appreciate everything I do for you. Whether we want to admit it or not, all of us have an as long as. We all have strings attached to our love. We all have expectations of other people that will get something in return. And we don't just put these conditions on people, we put these conditions on God. We say, God, I will love you and I will serve you as long as you help me achieve my goals. I will love you and I will serve you as long as you don't ask me to do anything I don't want to do. As long as you don't ask me to forgive that person I don't want to forgive, I will love you as long as. And see, some of us can mask our conditions longer than others. Some of us are really good at hiding our conditions, at hiding our strings, and we can sacrifice for years and play the martyr, but at some point, I'm going to tell you, everyone cracks. Everyone has a breaking point. At some point, we will all face a circumstance or a person or a season in life that will reveal that even our best efforts to love are stained with selfishness. And if you haven't experienced yet, experience it yet, you will. And when that happens, we have to wonder, we have to ask ourselves some hard questions and ask ourselves if our sacrifice really is true sacrifice. Is it for them or is it ultimately for you? Is it a means to an end? Is it a means to get something for yourself? Is it, is it a means to be validated, to be affirmed, to be appreciated? And all of a sudden, you will hear yourself saying to God and to others, but look at everything I've done for you. How much have I sacrificed for you? How much have I given up my time, energy, and resources for you? And all of a sudden, you pull out this ledger from your back pocket that you didn't even know you were holding. Those of us who are married in this room understand this dynamic very well, okay? That marriage really is just one long ledger that you keep with your spouse, okay? I let you go out last week, so it's my turn. I did the dishes last night, so you got it this time, right? And sometimes the really scary people are the ones that make you think there's no ledger at all, right? And then years later, the whole thing comes out. And it's like 17 pages long. And the other person is like, you were keeping track? And you're like, always. <laughs> always. But you see, the love of Christ has no ledger. And if there were a ledger, you and I would have absolutely nothing to stand on. The Apostle John says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, period. Not because we laid down our lives for him, not because we loved him or offered anything of benefit to him, but simply because he loved us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. There is no as long as when it comes to the way Jesus loves us. In Romans 5, 8, we read that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us while we were his enemies, while we were opposed to him. You and I, we struggle to love even the people who say they love us. I mean, the idea of loving someone who is opposed to us, loving our enemies, is just so far-fetched, it's so unthinkable, and yet this is the love Jesus Christ 
has for us. Like, think about even the people Jesus called his friends. What benefit did Jesus' so-called friends offer to Jesus? Success? They weren't powerful. They weren't wealthy, right? They didn't have anything to give to him. Loyalty? His best friend denied knowing him three times, and his other so-called friends sold him off for 30 pieces of silver. Emotional support? In the lowest moment of his life when Jesus was grieving and he asked, can you just do one thing for me? Pray for me. What happened? They fell asleep on him and abandoned him. These are Jesus' so-called friends. And you know what? He still died for them. And he died for you. And he died for me. For Jesus, it has never been, I will love you as long as. For Jesus, it has always been, I will love you even when. I will love you even when you don't love me back. I will love you even when nobody else loves you. I will love you even when you doubt me. I will love you even when you run from me. I will love you no matter what. In this world where love is so contractual, right, where my love for you is often contingent upon your ability to uphold your end of the bargain, Jesus says, my love isn't a contract, it's a covenant. It's never failing. It's a love that says, even when you don't, I will. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Listen to this. Even when we were dead in transgressions. Even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And we have to get this if we want to love the way Jesus loved. You see, before you and I can love well, we must first be loved well. In order for us to love without condition, you and I have to first believe we are loved without condition. Ultimately, why do you and I make people work for love? Why do you and I make people earn love? It's because we believe we have to earn it. We believe we have to do something or be someone to be loved. The paradox of selfishness is that it's rooted in self-rejection. You don't often think the two go together, but the paradox of selfishness is rooted in self-rejection. This is why we say that hurt people hurt people and loved people love people, right? And what does, that, what does that mean? Why are we ultimately selfish? It's because ultimately we believe we lack something that we need to be loved. And so we need to go to other people and extract that from other people. We need to make other people work for their love because we feel like we have to work for our love. We believe that there's something we have to do or be to make us worthy. And a lot of us pick this message up from parents who seemingly only loved us when we were performing or when we were in line. We pick this up from friends who abandoned us the moment we weren't useful to them anymore. We pick this up from a culture that seemingly rewards people for what they bring to the table, their popularity, their wealth, their status, their power. And when this becomes your modus operandi, your entire life becomes one long search for love. You climb the social ladder for love. You hop around from relationship to relationship for love. You serve and you sacrifice 
for love. But what would happen if we truly grasped that this love that we're so desperately seeking is already ours in Christ Jesus, who loved us so much that he hung on a cross for our sake? I imagine the father's heart breaking when he sees his children looking, scrounging around for love, seeking love in other people, when he says, look up at the cross, this is how loved you are. You want to know if you're loved? Look at the cross. Everything you could want or imagine, everything you're asking for from the other person, every reason for why you're withholding forgiveness, why you're holding on to that grudge, I paid for it, and I love you as you are. Friends, when you learn to abide in Jesus' unconditional love for you, when you begin to sit under the waterfall of love that is constantly flowing from his heart into yours, it frees us from selfishness because we no longer need, like we no longer feel there's anything someone could give us that we don't already have. We already have everything we could ask for or imagine. Paul in Ephesians 3.16 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And get this, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see, when we're able to grasp the unfathomable love of God, we will no longer love to get something for ourselves. We will love simply because there's no more room in our heart. There's no more room in our heart because of all the love that the Father has lavished on us. So all we can do is let that love overflow. All we can do is express that love because it's just constantly flowing in and we don't know what to do with it. That's what embodying the love of Jesus looks like. Well, on that note, um, we have a special treat today. Um, it's one thing to preach the love of God, and it's another thing to be able to hear the story of someone who is a living embodiment of that love. Uh, earlier today, uh, you heard from our sister, Esther Park, who serves on staff um, overseeing our city partnerships. Um, but for those of you who don't know, she also works full-time for an organization known as LINK, Liberty in North Korea, uh, that does some incredible work uh, rescuing and resettling refugees who've escaped North Korea. Many of you know of the horrible human rights violations that are happening, that have been happening um, in that country for a long time. And a big component of LINK's work is actually through a program known as the Advocacy Fellows Program, which basically develops and empowers um, young North Korean refugees uh, to be advocates, storytellers, uh, agents of love and change in the world. And we have the privilege of being able to worship with our friends who are part of this program today, one of whom will be sharing his story with us. Okay, and I had a chance to hear um, Noah's story earlier this week, and really I can't uh, think of someone better uh, to wrap up this sermon for me and illustrate uh, what a life gripped by the love of God looks like. So would you join me at this time as we welcome uh, our brother Noah to the stage.
thank you, thank you so much. Um, hello, my name is Noah. I am very happy and grateful to be here, Citizen City Church, to share my story you, with you. I believe this is entirely through God's grace that a boy who was born in North Korea and fled to South Korea can be here in Los Angeles share my story. Okay. The reason why I am here today is because I wanted to share about the love of Jesus who has led me this far. I was born in, in a small rural village in North Korea on July 25, 1999. My father was an abusive alcoholic and drug addict who hit my mother every day. When my mother was away from home, he hit me and my sister, who was six years older than me. North Korea's laws didn't protect us from such violence. My father's violence intensified when I became eight years old. My father stabbed my mother in the lungs with a long knife. But there was no one to save us, no police, no law, no regime. No one brought my father to justice or helped my mother. In North Korea, it felt like the lives of women and children were as insignificant as insects. So my mother, who barely came back from the brink of death, protected us instead. She divorced my father, and we left our beloved hometown to go live in another remote city. Despite doing everything we could to escape our father's shadow, our lives remained difficult and destitute. Because North Korea is a patriarchal society, families like ours are looked down upon and despised. My mother was divorced, my sister and I were fatherless and poor. I wasn't even allowed to enlist in the military or go to college because of our hostile and status. My mother endured eight years of scornful looks and prejudice, but in the end, it became too much to bear. Especially since we couldn't expect any benefit from welfare or government relations. Eventually, my mother decided to escape from North Korea. I did not, not come to South Korea immediately after defecting from North Korea at the age of 16. Instead, I studied a Bible with missionaries in Thailand for three months. Those three months have been one of the most meaningful time of my life. I met Jesus there and was saved, which is why I am here today. While I was growing up, I lived a more limited life than my, than my peer because I didn't have a father. Poverty, prejudice, neglect, and discrimination 
left many scars and hurt me for a long time. I grew up without attention, so I became depressed. Sometimes I wanted to complain to my mother, but she herself was struggling to make a living, and I didn't want to make things hard for her. My mother did the best she could as a single mother. My depression and negative thoughts gradually improved after meeting God. For three months from Genesis to Revolution, God created the world and he sent his only son to, to die for me. Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sin. On the third day, he came back to life and promised to, to give me eternal life. I observed all of this like a sponge. There Jesus gave me love that my father never gave me. And for the first time in my life, I met missionaries who cared for me unconditionally, and I wanted to believe in Jesus, whom they believed in. Unlike my happy day in Thailand, my life in South Korea was harsh. After in South Korea, people looked down on me because I was, I was a North Korean defector. From the first day of school, I experienced discrimination. People criticized North Korea for being poor, a place where no one can live, with people who are brainwashed and helpless. Before I even had a chance to start my new life, I had already been labeled as a pale ruler. As someone who shouldn't even try, my friends was right about one thing. North Korea is a poor country, but the people there are living harder than anyone else in the world and have so much potential and passion. After making it through middle school, I entered in a high school where I studied as hard as I could. During those three years, I was never late, absent, or left early. I changed myself to participate in over 30 competitions, winning awards in all of them. To repay the help I received from those around me, I wanted to give back volunteered for over 400 hours. In the end, I was, I was able to graduate from high school with the best grades and applied for admission to the best university in Korea. I wanted to, get, I wanted, I wanted to get into a good university and show everyone, everyone who doubted me that North Korean defectors can succeed. However, contrary to my expectation, I was rejected from both colleges. 
After working so hard, I felt unfair and I couldn't understand what I lacked to be accepted. So I, so I prepared for a year again and applied with a high, higher SAT score. But this time too, I was unsuccessful. The moment I received the rejection letter, the word God came to my mind. What I was missing was God. I made this condition back then. God, I am nothing. Now there is nothing more I can do. I will turn to you, Lord. I live in the, your hands, Lord. Please help. After praying like that, I relied on God to study for another year, and then I was finally accepted to Seoul National University, a prestigious school, school like Harvard. When it is impossible to draw our strengths alone, when human thoughts fail us and it feels like there is no way out, God makes a way. When I am frustrated, when I lose all hope and direction, I have come to know that is the time when God stepped in. It was then that I fully accepted Jesus as a as the Lord of my life. My religious life has been like working on, on a tightrope between what I want to and what I ask God. Every time I have tried to something on my own because of my greed, I have failed and fallen. When I have instead step surrendered completely to the living God. His love has carried me through all obstacles. However, there is near freedom of faith, nor the love of Jesus in the hometown I left. This fact makes me sad, but I will no, no longer be sad. I will pray for change in North Korea because Jesus does what we cannot do. Please join us in praying of change and transformation in North Korea. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Noah, for sharing your story and your testimony. Um, and it's just so powerful and incredible to see how God's love truly can transform somebody's life. Um, so yeah, like Jason shared, um, if you would like to learn more about Liberty in North Korea, if you'd like to donate, support, um, if you have any questions, you can actually um, scan the QR code there. It'll take you to our website, or you can just go to libertyinnorthkorea.org. Uh, but yeah, I just want to close this time in praying for Noah um, and, yeah, and the work that Link will be doing as advocacy fellows start traveling tomorrow. God, we, we just thank you so much 
um, that you um, have chosen Noah and you have known Noah from uh, the very beginning um, and you knew exactly where he would meet you, that he would meet those missionaries in Thailand. And we thank you um, that your love is not selfish, uh, but that your love um, is relentless and you relentlessly pursue um, those that you love. And so we just thank you for the incredible way that you have transformed Noah's life. Um, and Lord, we just pray for North Korea and we pray uh, that many more would be able to come to know you um, and that through the work of Liberty North Korea as um, more refugees resettle here that they would come to know um, your loving grace. Um, so God, yeah, we, we thank you for the work that you are doing that we are, don't know, that we can't even see, that you're doing inside the country of North Korea and outside. And we thank you for opportunities that you give us as the body of Christ uh, to partner. We are so privileged to be able to have resources so that we can partner with other organizations that, that are doing that are doing work already. Uh, so God, we thank you. Um, would you be with us as we continue to worship you today? Uh, we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.